This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and therapist Kate Levinson is joined in conversation by CIIS's Kelly Kelly to discuss the intersection of money, business, and gender. This talk was recorded on March 28, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Um, welcome, Kate. On behalf of all of us at the university, welcome to CIIS. Is this your first time visiting us? No, actually, I've been to a couple of uh, workshops, classes myself here. And um, I'm thrilled that CIS is going to be the home for women, money, and spirit. We're all eagerly looking forward. I'm eagerly looking forward. <laughs> the need is great. <laughs> so, um, Kate Levinson wrote the book, Emotional Currency. It's a woman's guide to building a healthy relationship with money. And Kate, I wanted to, um, to start out asking you about, um, in the introduction, you, you know, you talk about doing money um, and how money is... Uh, beyond spreadsheets and beyond budgets and beyond financial planning or um, even filing our taxes, which are forthcoming. And so can you um, share with all of us what, what you mean by that, um, doing our money and the, how it's beyond these rational, practical actions that we all take? So I think most of us learn about money as something financial, and we think it stops there, that it's suppo- we're supposed to be rational about it and that it's knowable, it's numbers, and that any feelings we have about it are dangerous to have, that we should push them aside. But in fact, I've learned that Money is one of the most emotional aspects of our life. In my training, I don't know about these days, but in my training as a therapist, money never came up. In my analysis, in my therapy, money as something emotional never never was talked about. And I think it, you know, we have sex education. We don't have much financial literacy. We're not taught much about it. So it, it remains, we, we look at it, we, we have shame about how we deal with money often, what we have or how we manage it. And we keep it to ourselves. We don't talk about it. So part of what I learned in writing the book in terms of gender is that one of the primary ways that women learn about the world is talking to one another. We talk about what to do at work with a boss or a colleague that's problematic. 
we talk about our relationships. We get support when we get divorced. We get support when we're diagnosed with an illness. We go to our women friends. For the most part, we don't talk about money even with our best friends. Some people do, but mostly we're taught not to talk about money. So that's hard for men, not talking about it, keeping, keeping things inside, keeping it private. But it's even harder for women because that's one of the ways that we locate ourselves. You know, what do, what do I feel about something? I start talking with one of my friends about it. And through talking and being listened to, I find out what I really feel about it or what I should do or I get advice from them. Absolutely. So we have often have shame about money and we're taught not to talk about it. So we're left, really, when you think about it, we're left to manage this, something unmanageable, in, in this country at least, you know. I mean, we're, we're all crazy about money. And I mean that diagnostically. We're crazy. <laughs> we're funny about money. And, and we're left mostly to deal with it our, with ourselves or maybe if we're partnered with our partner. Sure, like in isolation. Like, this, this is, these are my bank accounts. <laughs> this is my checkbook. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to, you know, let anyone see. And so I, I want to know, you know, I'm so curious about that because we live in this day and age where um, on social media people tell everything, right, <laughs> too much, TMI. And, um, but we really don't talk about money as a culture. Uh, we don't talk about um, our consumer debt with our neighbors, you know. <laughs> we don't talk about um, typically the compulsive need to shop in order to not feel something or if a trigger comes up or um, just all the ways there are to, um, in fact, was it during the Gulf War? I think Operation Desert Storm of the early 90s, George Bush told um, everyone, just go shopping, right? <laughs> That's the solution to war, just go shopping. You know, keep, you know, feel the economy. So we're bombarded by all the, these messages um, to consume, right? Certainly in Western culture. But kid, I'm curious what your thoughts are on um, what creates that taboo of not telling, you know, um, of, of so many of us um, sort of being isolated in our own little financial orbit. You know, I, I don't, Really, no, I, I continue to be perplexed about why the field of psychology didn't have more interest in money. Because it seems like it's a very, it's a big part of our states of mind, right? Or it, it influences so much about our psychological self and our sense of self in this culture. And I, I'm not sure, I, I think that it carries so much weight, carries so many meanings in, in this culture that maybe it, it feels too big to talk about. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think the taboo's always been there. It's, you know, it's not proper to bring up money. Even if you have a lot of it, right? Like, yeah, and sometimes like, especially if you have a lot of it. Especially if you have a lot of it. Because you don't want to be treated, you know, the fear is that you will be treated differently if you have money. We, 
it's a god in this country, you know? I mean, we put wealthy people uh, into office <laughs> as president. We, we hold great esteem. We value people who make a lot of money. They make a lot of money. That, that's all it says, that they're good at making money. But we hold, we hold them in, um, we value them more. So I, I actually don't know why the taboo has such a strong hold still. I do know that, that in safe settings, in small groups, in workshops, in conferences, where people are there to talk about money, that they break through the shame very relatively quickly. And that we have a lot to say to one another when we can tell each other's stories. This is not about talking about what, necessarily about what your bank balance is, but telling stories about the, the traumas and the joys and the, and the experiences we've had growing up and as adults, and what we've inherited from our ancestors, even if we didn't know our grandparents or great-grandparents, their experiences with money their experiences with everything are in our DNA. So we have, we have reactions to things that they don't, it doesn't just fall from the sky, it comes from our personal psychology, it comes from the culture, it comes from our families, it comes from our ancestors, it comes from our race, it comes from our religion, it comes on and on, right? There's so many influences. And these stories are, are teaching stories for us, but when we can't talk about them, when they stay inside, they, they, um, they influence us. We can't, we can't push them away. We, can, we think we can, but we can't. They're, they're coming out in undigested ways. So look, looking at our stories and telling each other our stories and learning each other's stories, it's, a, it's a, really a wonderful way to get to know other people. It's a deep way. Money's a, a deep vehicle into our psyches and into our emotions, into our bodies, into our spiritual life. And so you cultivate this um, safety, like this, um, you know, safety. Uh, you cultivate and create um, intimate spaces so that people feel free to open and they feel safe. And I'm just wondering, um, is money often a, a subject in your um, private practice with clients? Yes. I, at this point in my practice, people come to me because of an issue with money in, in relationship, uh, with children, with themselves. And we talk about money, but it always leads into other material. Right. One of the things that um, struck me in the introduction was um, this quote that for most women, money is laden with feeling. And I'm curious, um, if you, I'd like you to elaborate on that, you know, the feeling of money, but also why, um, why you characterize this as being something for most women. And, you know, where, where do men fall on, on that or um, anyone that's male-identified? So, you know, it's, uh, I know we're talking about gender. Hooray for gender. <laughs> I 
the um, you know the way I conceptualized in the book. So the book is written with women in mind, but men who could read a book that has women in the subtitle seem to have benefited from the book as well. It, so it's not just that women have feelings about money. It's that, especially when I wrote the book, that women had more access to feeling. I think there's, hopefully there's some shift happening. So women, the feminine, women automatically knew that there was an emotional relationship to money when I talk about money. Whereas often men would say it's just a thing, right? It's just a, just a thing to master. It's just a thing to play with. It's just a thing to... Count. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Save. Yeah. So that, you know, the king is counting his money. Is he successful or not? So it's a measure. It's not, there's not much emotion involved. And, and women understood that it was about relationship. I think it's about relationship for men too. It's just whether or not they're conscious about that. That money has everything to do with relationship. It's a vehicle for connecting us to one another. It's also a vehicle for disconnecting. And it's a vehicle for expressing endless amounts of messages to, to our children, our spouse, our coworker, our, the world. Sometimes those messages often we're not even aware we're conveying them. So when you go, when you go back and look at your childhood, you can have a really traumatic experience, some, an experience that you feel was traumatic. Um, Recently, a client told me that she saved and saved and saved to buy a bicycle. And she had enough money, and she was going to go the next day to buy the bicycle. And her father had bought her the bicycle. So the, the bicycle was at home when she got home from school before she was able to go and buy this bike that she'd been working for months and months and months to get. This was... This was a pivotal story to her that, that influenced, when she looked at the stories of her childhood, this was one of the influential stories about there's no point in really working hard to get something. He, with that one action, and undoubtedly other actions, that was the, like the core story that then other stories were were attached to, he undid a certain kind of motivation for her. Sort of, you know, stole her thunder, if yeah, you will. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And she that recognizes she was going to go home and call her dad and ask, what was your intention? Because I, I took a certain message from that, she said, but maybe that wasn't his intention. I don't even know what his intention was. So... These, these uh, experiences we have can, can be mis... Can we interpret them in certain ways. Sometimes that is the message that the parent meant or the, wh 
whoever meant. Sometimes it's not the message at all. And oftentimes, the message is really unconscious. Because, again, we don't think of money emotionally. We don't, we're not aware of it. We just think of it as this detached object. One of the things that I um, <clears throat> recall you, uh, that, that you wrote in the book was about um, piercing that psychological denial. And is this like an example of that where there's, like I'm curious as to how that story, oh, well, I guess you shared it in a certain way, but um, how that really informed the rest of her money life. It was like she no longer could believe that she was... She kind of gave up. She gave up. She kind of gave up, and, it, and money was symbolic, right? That she gave up on investing in making things happen in her life. She, she became more passive. And again, I don't think it was just that one story that probably was repeated in other ways that she learned that. But she, she disconnected. Some piece of her efficacy was lost because of that. Um, do you care to share with us um, any of your personal traumas or um, those pivotal moments in childhood that shaped Mm. your mm -hmm. money uh, relationship. So maybe I'll tell a little of how I came to do this work. Yes, that would I, be amazing. I really, when I was in graduate school, I didn't think I'd specialize in money. <laughs> it was the last thing I wanted to study, really. Um, and uh, my husband and I sold a house that we had years ago. And it was one of the few dips in the market in my lifetime in the real estate market. And, uh, and housing prices were escalating. And I would walk through my neighborhood in Oakland feeling that I was going to be a homeless person. Not only that I was going to be, I felt like I was a bag lady. I felt um, uh, that I didn't have a place. I, I was renting a place. I... Um, had food on the table, I had income, I had more than enough, and I literally felt like I was a bag lady. So that got my attention, and I went back to therapy, because I was a therapist, and I went back to therapy and discovered how owning a home felt like total security to me. I just assumed that I would always own a home, and that um, money. What a concept. Isn't that, I know, nowadays. <laughs> Owning a home <laughs> in San long, Francisco. <laughs> long time ago, it was more possible, but not for everyone, of course. So, has a, this is a good place to say that what I say about money has everything to do with my experiences of money. It's so subjective. We all have different perspectives based on our, on our own experiences, and that there isn't a right way to do money. There isn't there isn't a right, uh, there's not a formula for money that it's like anything else in our lives, really knowing who we are. When we know who we are, then we can work with what's working and what's not working, and we can, we can amplify things and, and, and heal what needs to be healed. So it was clear that I needed to work on where my security came from, and I came to see that I, I had a um, half-sister growing up, a beloved half-sister who was 
16 years older than I, a very creative to charismatic person who also was very self-destructive and who became a heroin addict in the 60s. And she would call home for money before I went to school and to pay the drug dealer who was going to kill her or to turn on the heat in New York when it was freezing. And um, my mother would rush. In those days, you went to Western Union to send money. And then my father, uh, my mother had grown up with wealth. My father had grown up uh, very poor, uh, was l literally ill from my mother sending money. And he stopped the flow of money to my mother. And my mother sold her blood and my mother sold her antiques and her jewelry in order to support my sister's addiction. So probably why I became a therapist, that story, and I worked that story a lot in my analysis and my therapy, and, um, uh, and my sister subsequently killed herself, so I, I wasn't able to save my sister, which I had, had really tried to do. And neither was your mother. And neither was my mother. And money wasn't able to money save her. Money wasn't able to save her. But I didn't get that. I connected money in those calls. It was the money that was going to save my sister. In reading about this this part in the book, um, I, I was struck by the, um, the codependence that's involved. And I was wondering if you could speak about that, because I've noticed in my own financial path how... Um, I would say one of my symptoms of dysfunction in managing money. By the way, as I say that, do you think um, all of us are dysfunctional with money? Do you think um, one of the things that I, I read in the book was that, you know, we're all a little crazy trying to figure this thing out. Do you think that we're all, do you really believe that we're all a little crazy with money? I that, think that we that, live in a, a crazy culture. Uh huh. You know, I, th I think it's... dysfunctional with money? Yeah. You think? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's hard not to be, yeah. maybe, is the answer to that. Yeah. So one of my things was, um, I and I would say, characterize this as an aspect of codependency, wanting to please people. So I would, like, over-tip waiters or taxi drivers or... Lyft drivers are, you know, just a way of, I noticed how my own people-pleasing sometimes um, really affected my relationship to money. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, both in your own family, both in your own, your own personal relationships, because, you know, you made it very clear that uh, money is relational and that it both connects us, but it also creates distance if someone owes us $10,000 and they're not paying. Um, so I, I'm just really struck by that codependency kind of link. And, if and you have do you think that's gender-related that. at all? Gender-related. Pleasing, uh, wanting to please the Lyft driver? or You know, I don't know. I think... Um, I can't... I can only speak for myself. I yeah. can't speak for all gender identities that are in the room. And what I would say is that I, I have three brothers. 
Okay, they're all male identified. One of my brothers is a really good provider. So he is the primary bread, he's actually the primary breadwinner of anyone in the family. Like he's the most successful. And, you know, follow the, um, that, I'll say prescribed path. Um, He followed the path of go to college, get married, buy the house, have three kids. Um, and he's the primary breadwinner. So that's sort of a certain archetype that's kind of traditional, I would say, in our culture. Does that sound right? And um, so I look at him and I think, oh, he's just being a really good provider. He's a stand-up dad. He's an amazing father. And so I don't know if that's codependence in his case. I don't know what the line is for him. I only know that for me, I tend to be a people pleaser. Um, I think many women have been conditioned in our culture to please um, their partners and to please, you know, overextend oneself, Um, in my own case, often to the wrong people. And um, so I think that can fall along gender gender lines, but it's probably um, more of a human characteristic well I think I think moms often like my mom have a hard time saying no and it is it's used to express love right it's we receive it and hear the messages of love we also use it to express love and um, but I know men who also fall into that with their children so I don't think it's uh, I, I think the codependent or using money to buy love, I think, is um, probably across gender lines. I think for women, it is harder to put ourselves into the equation. Again, generalizing is is uh, is difficult to do, but I think um, certainly women of my generation and the n- next generation down that, including ourselves, in negotiating for fees, salaries. Uh, taking care of ourselves. You know, they say women's money is family money, whereas men's money is more about themselves. Certainly internationally, when, they, when, when there's aid work, you're better off giving money to a woman because she will find ways of sustaining the family. And the She'll man goes off. stretch that dollar. <laughs> right. Stretch that bottom yeah. dollar. <laughs> so there, I think there is something. How, how much is cultural? How much is you know, in, innate in us? I have no idea. I would also think it also matters on social class too, right? Um, I think if there's maybe less money, if you have a lot of money, and you're um, from more maybe say an elite social class. Um, I think that it, I don't know, it's just my uh, feeling. I'm. It's so particular too. How, how did the money come? Whose money is it? You know, if women who marry into wealth often have very little power, even though they have access to all this money. They either feel less empowered or the, the, the man tends to dominate. Um, in, an, in a heteronormative context. Yes, exactly. That, yes. Um, and also in gay relationships as well. You know, I think the, 
it's just also new in gay relationships to have access to the money when you're, you know, through marriage. For how many years were, were people partnered and then they, one of their, uh, and their, their partner died and they, they lost the house, they lost access to the money, they had no financial rights. It's, and it's recent for women to have financial rights. I mean, until very, relatively recently, women, when they married, uh, gave them the, their financial rights were transferred to their husband. You know, if they had inherited or earned the money, it became the husband's. So, you know, I, one of the dimensions that I think a lot about is um, hierarchical, how money is used to reinforce hierarchy and domination, power. And there are other models which are harder for us to gestate and to come from, but the, that are about cooperation and sharing and um, concern for one another, concern for the planet, where, the, where just the dollar and making money uh, is it, not really the point. Money is used as a tool to, um, a, a means to an end rather than the end. One of the th uh, key uh, components of your book, and I know that you teach this in your workshops, is having participants write what you call a money memoir. And um, I've also heard it uh, in other financial texts considered our inner blueprint, right? We all like inherited a, you know, a financial blueprint from our family of origin or our social class or whatever, we all have one. And um, you refer to it as the money memoir. And there was uh, one money memoir that was mentioned in the book, I, a woman I believe named Jessica. And I think she came from abject poverty or working class to be sure. And then so she became an accountant. However, then she moved geographically away from her family as a way to distance herself from pov poverty. And so sometimes in the transcendence of so social class, as somebody transcends the social class in which they were born and you know, attains education and it attains a certain, certain salary level, um, there's uh, a big part of her um, many money memoir, I recall, was uh, this feeling of buying off her relatives um, that kept asking her for money. There was this uh, dependency on her. And so she would send money, also sort of ties in with that codependency thing, but it was also this sense of buying them off because of her own guilt, to assuage her guilt for um, having transcended. And maybe even, I hasten to add, leave others behind. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about money memoir. And so it's, it's really just um, looking at the stories of what influences, influenced and influences us. So it's like looking at any dimension in your life. It's not my idea. It's, uh, it's I think, in a lot of... Um, a lot of programs and books that have to do with looking at money emotionally. But, for instance, the story of my sister and learning 
that I was associating money with life and death, even though my experience had never been about survival. I've been really fortunate and always had enough. So understanding that story of my sister and how her calls in the middle of the night were associated internally in me with survival and that I needed to hold on to whatever money I had, hoard it so that when the catastrophe happened or the crisis happened, that I would have enough. And coming to unpack that and realize that actually, as Kelly said, money didn't save my sister and money wasn't going to save me, that there needed to be other sources of security relationship for me that when when I go through something really hard it's not going to be money it's going to be some inner inner intelligence relationship capacities and that shifted my relationship to money completely so that I could actually use money and make decisions about money without always having to hold on, and when I'm always holding on, then of course th things would happen so that I would spend the money impulsively or I'd lose the money. It wasn't like I was amassing a great fortune. Mm. So does that mean like uh, being uh, contracted about money? Yes, absolutely. Creates a negative effect. Right, I couldn't, I couldn't appreciate what I had and I couldn't use it. I d money is an energy and it needs to flow, absolutely, and generosity is an important important piece of that, I think. Sharing and generosity and appreciating what you have. And in this culture, it's hard to feel. I, I don't think we have a concept of enough, so it's really hard to feel that we ever have enough. We always feel the scarcity or at, at risk. So stories of, um, uh, you know, little stories of, there's a story in my book of, about a girl who really wanted, uh, when she was young, she really wanted a harmonica, and her she asked for the harmonica, asked for the harmonica, would go to the music store, look at the harmonica, then her brother was given the harmonica for his birthday. That is so heartbreaking. I mean, <laughs> that was a captivating story, but my heart just shattered when I read that. Like, could really feel that. So it's really, right, it's just the littlest of things, right, that were we given to? You know, could we ask for more than we were given? Did we trust that other people would take care of us? Or did we have to take care of ourselves? All sorts of unpacking you know, money has to do with need. It's directly related to need. Did we interpret it as love? With my father, money was love. And I felt like he didn't love me. And, under, and coming to see, my dad was, had trauma around money and was wounded about money and really couldn't, couldn't give money, couldn't spend money. With compassion, I could, I could appreciate that and take it, and, and see it, have a different perspective on it, and do some of the healing work. So these stories, I, I think I write in the book that, you know, it, it can be a, like a really big thing, like my sister's, you know, heroin addiction, 
or it can be some the little harmonica, you know, the little the the hummingbird that flies by really quickly, but that. The, to let the memories, as you do with any emotional work you're doing, to let the memories come and start asking yourself questions about your experiences and your parents' experiences and your grandparents' experiences. And there's so much rich material, you know, of, of having and not having and displacement and having, you know, having things stolen or, or having our ancestors steal or, you know... Do you think then that we should all go home and write our money me, money memoir? <laughs> well, I, I don't know that do I recommend it tonight. But, not tonight. Don't but, go, don't but starting, write your money money memoir without delay. <laughs> but starting to think about it and and being awake when you hand when you buy something, when you hand money, you know, there, there are incidents every day. There are issues around money. There's something you're envious of or something that you, you know, that you've lost or some unexpected bill or there's just, there's endless opportunity to examine what, what we feel, what we feel about it and how we're dealing with it. Waking up to it, that's what I think is really hard in this culture. Like you said, the messages that, the messages are that there's something wrong with us, that if we just made more money or we bought that car or we bought the latest whatever that we would be okay and that's not true and to and to really wake up to the how complex it is in our lives and how many people who you know who is who who who's buying that pair of shoes is it me or is it my mother you know or who's who's influencing me if I um I mean, I could only buy things at, at thrift stores for years, you know? What was that about? It's being curious instead of judging ourselves. I think we judge ourselves a lot for what we have or don't have or how we deal with money and we feel inadequate and we're, you know, we're supposed to be doing it differently. And again, it's one of the places since we don't hear that many stories from our from our friends, we don't get to know what keeps them up in the middle of the night. Or, you know, what the woman who appears to, you know, she has no trouble going out to eat in restaurants and she buys clothes and she's, you know, the friend who just seems like she has plenty, who's actually accruing credit card debt. You know, can, can I say to my friend, I don't want to split the bill. You just had a glass of wine and I don't, I didn't, and I don't, you know. I, can I say I don't want to go to that restaurant? All the there's so many opportunities to discover our reactions and to be curious really helps us to see things rather than that judgment about oh I'm a failure I you know I'm in all this debt or um, I wish I could do that or there you know we project like crazy. I um, the bookstore was really interesting um, for me. Having you know, as therapists, the money's really sanitized, right? We, we we might get the check, the checks put on the table, or the old days people used to just send the check in the mail, the bill and the check in the mail. So, being in a bookstore for 14 years, I touched money all the time, and how people hand you their credit card or their cash is really instructive. How it feels to to not be looked at as the quirk, you know, the person looks away and they hand you your credit card. You're a, you're a non-person. 
or they don't look at the credit card receipt, or they tell you stories about, well, they tell you that, you know, you made them buy this book, or why can't it be, uh, you know, why can't it be on sale, or all these comments about money continually. It's really interesting, but one of the things I learned was really about the interdependence of money. How the people who chose to buy a book at a bookstore rather than on Amazon where they'd save sometimes substantial amounts of money, they were investing in my, our business, our being on Main Street, investing in a, a community serving business and they were, uh, it was a direct experience of being supported. Their money was, I was receiving their money with gratitude because I knew they had other choices. It's like and the I difference between buying your um, eggs and produce at the farmer's market versus the grocery store or Costco, <laughs> right? Yeah. How personal. It's a, it's a gratifying experience. And it's so and personal. Talking to the vendors and so can forth. can be so intimate. And there is some reciprocity that you experience when you are supporting people that you really believe in or want to support. And, and you feel it as, as a vendor, you know? So that we're, we I are... I feel it as a consumer. Yes. Like in the, in the farmer's markets and so forth, talking to the farmers or the people that have picked the stuff or they can tell you about the dirt, you know? Because um, I always ask, you know, um, is that... Does that have any pesticides? And, and sometimes they'll go, no, 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 it's not sprayed at all in the winter. You know, <laughs> you just got you know, or the, I'll ask about the soil, but like the, you know, the the they they're really a lot of people are really in the know, and they can tell you everything. Oh no no no, we don't use any chemical fertilizers and all that little stuff. Um, so you, you get just an, don't get you don't get that information at the um, big box warehouse stores. Right? There's <laughs> added benefit to you. There's Absolutely. added value. To yeah, you. and I would say it's mostly that relationship. The relational, it's a, it's, for me, um, there's something, I think that sometimes shopping or spending money can be transactional, and that transactional is very, uh, feeling is very impersonal, and it, um, it's meaningless, it feels meaningless, whereas shopping, like you said, at an independent bookseller or a boutique or heck, even a garage sale, um, um, and talking to somebody and making a connection, um, that to me always feels much more gratifying. Yeah, I, I think there's something really direct when you, it relates to spirituality too, I think. I think that we separate out the spiritual and the material, and that they're actually not separate. So that when we use money in this warm-hearted way, well, when we use money with our hearts open, and when we're paying attention, that it actually is a is a um, a very direct um, way to connect with people. It has potential for connection. I don't know what this has to do with gender, though. I feel like I realize we. I don't know what it has to do with gender. Well, I wanted to um, mention one thing. Um, 
it's sort of an intersection with both gender, um, at least in my family, and and divorce. Because you talk about you know changing family structures in the book, and if there's a divorce involved or um, a breakup. Um, any kind of shift in the family structure. And I know that um, in part of my many money memoir, if you will, I didn't write an official Kate Levinson-approved mem money memoir, but I've done a lot of my own unpacking just through my own financial, I would say, recovery, education process, if you will, um, of being socialized in a hyper-consumeristic capitalist culture, right? Um, and in finding my way, a um, couple things um, that, are, that happened for me is when I was writing about some early childhood experiences, I had um, taken care of the neighbor's cats and for, uh, while they were on vacation, right? And I would go over there and I was probably about 11 or 12. And um, when they came back from vacation, they paid me more money than I'd ever been paid as a kid. Like, I came from a working class family and I got a very nominal allowance, right? Um, and when I got the money, I felt like I didn't deserve it. And so I said to my mom, I think the Martins paid me too much. So when I was 11, I went back to the Martins and I gave some of it back, you know? And so that was like a real big, um, a wake-up call for me. And another one was when my parents divorced. Um, and my eldest brother um, was just about to go to college. Oh, no, he was in college. So there a, a lot of family resources were directed at him. Like, we all got in the car and drove him to UC Davis and put him at his little dorm. And, you know, he was the beneficiary of a lot of family resources. And I don't... I, I, I want to not say the term a lot of resources, like I said, um, working class family. However, um, by the time I reached college age, my parents divorced. In fact, my mother um, left my father one week after high school graduation. So all of a sudden there weren't the same level of resources, right? And so I really copped a big resentment both toward my parents and my brother because like he got the goods, right? He got the... You know, he got the, the dough and he got all this stuff. So um, I was wondering if you would talk about that a little bit and how um, I know in the book there's um, an anecdote about, you know, a mother giving a certain sister more money. Unintentionally, like everyone may be well-intentioned, but there's always like this negative or adverse impact, right? And the impact of actions don't always follow the intention because we're all kind of sleepwalking through our money stuff. Yeah, and, and it's not fair. It's not money, fair. <laughs> money is not fair in any way that I, I can see, right? I mean, that some people have a lot of money and some people have nothing. And it's not about human value. It's, uh, there's so many aspects of our money lives that are out of our control divorce and our family being one that really impacts often the woman, you know, uh, greatly, um, but the man as well, so. Yeah, because nowadays there's women that are, you know, powerhouse breadwinners, a right? lot, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of women who make more than their partners, 
Yes. Certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I um, right, it's how we metabolize that, those stories like that of our brother getting more than we did or right. sure. um, a, a change in the family circumstances. And then often, you know, we have different parents. How our parents treat us is different. We have different parents, even though we have the same parents, and their financial circumstances change over the course of, of um, you know, our siblings and our lives. So uh, it's, uh, but I think unfairness is really, it's something we all have to come to terms with. Right. And it, it's one of those, it's another aspect of how the powerlessness. Like we have no, we're powerless as children over divorce. Uh, we're powerless as partners over a breakup, right, sometimes. And there seems to be this general powerlessness often experienced in relationship to money. And toward the end of the book, actually it's the appendix, you have a lot of resources, um, different books um, mentioned, different groups. And I was wondering if you could mention, like, so here, here we all are in a room, and perhaps some of us are just experiencing, you know, um, creditors calling on the phone or knocking on our doors or, right, or a car being repossessed or, um, what's a good first step? What's a good practical first step besides coming to your workshop on April 29th? Um, <laughs> I, th I think, you know, I, I feel like I want to say something big about the stranglehold that money has over so many of our lives. And, to to let other things really count in our lives, to let other things other things have value, and to find other ways of valuing ourselves because we use money so much as a gauge for um, how we interact in the world or how we feel about the world or how we feel about ourselves, and that you know money uh, money of course is hugely important. It's about survival. But there's so much else in life that's really important too and that we need in addition to money. So um, I think, uh, and then though we haven't, I, I hope the questions can, be, can direct us more about gender, but to, to think about how you use money uh, to express your gender, your self-identified gender, the gender you were born with. To think about how you use money and how gender has influenced your relationship to money. Um, clearly, the misogyny in, the, in our culture is expressed um, through money. We, women are paid 76 cents still, 76 cents on the dollar for equitable work. A man is paid a dollar and a woman is paid 76 cents. So the whole valuation of the feminine and women in this culture is uh, very much tied to money. And also it was the irony is that uh, you mentioned philanthropy in the book that um, with philanthropy women give more, right? Percentage-wise. Women give more? Women. And, Yes, women give women more. Give more. Yes. And um, 
you know, women are very savvy about investments. They say that they're better, as good or better than men. But their sense of their competency in terms of investments is much lower. Women underestimate their abilities and men overestimate their abilities. Of course, how could it be any different? But we, but to know these things so that we can we can we can write ourselves so that we can have uh, we can compensate so we that we can balance ourselves um, to know the vulnerabilities that we have in terms of our financial lives and our relationship to money and work with those we can heal them just like we heal other things and that there are resources in the book the book's a little dated now it's five years old but there are even more resources on the on the internet now um, so that you you know the main thing is to talk about this with other people to not feel alone the financial industry wants us to stay dumb and they separated and... And to take out more loans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and credit cards. That's the solution. Yes. So, um, you know, there are lots of uh, groups and their services or um, opportunities on the internet for joining with other people and getting educated and, and to not feel like you're the only one, right? It's really important. May I just list a couple of resources that Please. you mentioned in the appendix? Uh, let's see. This is uh, one of my favorite books. She has a book list here. Kate put a, a, a really good book list. And this was a book I read probably about 15 years ago. And it's by Barbara Stanny and women. It's called Prince Charming Isn't Coming, which I just, I think that title says it all. Uh, How Women Get Smart About Money. Um, another one is, let's see. There was, oh, uh, the Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life by Lynn Twist. And um, I had the pleasure of uh, going to see Lynn Twist uh, when she was doing a reading one time in San Francisco. And she said this thing that I'll never forget. She said, you know, I, she sits on some boards and um, she's affiliated with the Pachimama Alliance. And she, she said that, you know, I raise money from billionaires and even billionaires don't think they have enough. And so it, it just really showed, it was um, illustrative of how um, that idea of not enough or lack of sufficiency um, is between the ears. You know, it exists in the head, but it's not, you know, the problem is almost like the perception of the problem. I think once you have enough for the basic necessities of life, so much of what we deal with is between the ears, as you say. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, for groups, you have Debtors Anonymous, and I would hasten to add Under Earners Anonymous as one, and even Workaholics Anonymous, because um, there's uh, a lot of money dysfunction related to workaholism. Um, and then you have, let's see, some websites, Emotional Currency, hello, uh, which is uh, www.emotionalcurrency.com, and then Susie Orman, www.susieorman.com, and then MSN Money, which is www.moneycentral.msn.com. So all of these amazing resources are in Kate Levinson's book, Emotional Currency, How a 
A Woman's Guide to Building a Healthy Relationship with Money. But we use the term woman loosely, right? Because <laughs> right. it could now be like right. a human's guide. Could it, could it be yeah. a human's guide to building a healthy yeah, much better. with money? My message, I, I always feel, I'm, I'm just going to say this so maybe it won't be so hard driving home tonight. I always feel incredible shame after I talk because it's so complex, you know? And my little stories are so my little stories. And I, we haven't done justice to everybody's stories in the room. So I just want to say that my point in doing this work is to have each of you go home and write, talk, break through that isolation that is, um, that is so much a part of this culture. So as Kelly says, so that we don't feel we have to do it alone. We can't do it alone. Thank you all so much for being here. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.